Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode in New Books in History. My name is Benjamin, and I'm an Enfield and World History candidate at the University of Cambridge. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anna Clark. Anna is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow at the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney, where she also serves as an Associate Professor at the School of Communication. Today, we are discussing Anna's latest publication, Making Australian History, published by Random House Australia in 2022. Making Australian History deals with the question of what it means to write and produce Australian history and tells the story of successive generations of history makers in Australia and the histories they produce both within and outside the historical discipline. In writing this historiography of Australian history, Anna reviews the many agents involved in the production of history in Australia, the ways in which the academic discipline of history has excluded Indigenous and Aboriginal voices in its production, and reflects on a path forward for the discipline in the future. I'm very excited to discuss this book. Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. As is traditional on the New Books Network, uh, let me begin by asking about you. Could you tell us about yourself and the story behind the writing of Making Australian History? How did this project come about? Sure, thank you. Well, um, my background is in uh, Australian history. Specifically, I've been very interested in debates around Australian history and why Australian history um, has become so contested in recent decades. And this, of course, hasn't been confined to Australia. The so-called history wars have played out, you know, um, in nations all over the world, in the US over uh, museum exhibits um, and, and you know, the um, Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the UK, of course, similarly um, in New Zealand, Canada, Japan and so on in terms of, in terms of national memory. In the Australian context, um, it has been a really heated public debate and it has generated a lot of interest um, a lot of government intervention, uh, a lot of um, uh, involvement in and editing of history syllabuses and curriculum documents. Uh, it appears on the front page of the newspapers. Um, it's very heated and it's very public. And it really reflects how changeable I think history is, that history is up for grabs, that there's no settled narrative in Australian history. And 
um, as I sort of studied this more and more, I became interested, I was curious that despite these kind of the, the heated nature of this debate, there had been no history of the ways Australian history had changed over the decades without, or, or, you know, over millennia even. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to look at, you know, with my prompt being the kind of so-called history wars, I was interested in understanding what makes Australian history changeable and how has it changed over many generations. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, I mean, I am a Southeast Asianist historian myself. And even when I was reading this book, I really could see how the themes and the issues that you discussed really sp- spill over into really many parts of the world. So I do think this was really, yeah. So I, I, yeah. I kind of, I, obviously this is a kind of a parochial study. You know, I'm an Australian historian working in Australia with Australian material, but I did want to write it in a way that wasn't totally inward looking. And I think some of the problems with the history wars uh, and a lot, of, a lot of national historical debates is that they are very inward looking and very parochial and they don't, there's no sort of awareness that these are questions and debates that play out all over the world, like histories of colonialism, histories of empire, histories of war, histories of national memorialization and commemoration. They are very transnational themes. So um, I'm glad you found something to take away there, Benjamin. Yeah, so I think uh, on that note, I, I want to actually ask a little bit about uh, the title of the book. Uh, and of course, the title of the book is linked to your proposal. And here you're citing Money Hughes Warrington that maybe rather than using the term history, we might want to consider using the term making uh, history making instead. So I was wondering if you could walk us through uh, what do you mean by history making and how does it differ from, you know, big H history as you put it in the text? Yeah, thank you. Um, so when I began this book, I guess I was really thinking about the discipline of history, Um, what you've just referred to then as capital H history. And that's the history that many of us are familiar with from our school education or our university education. Um, it's It's a history, it's a discipline that has its foundation in the Enlightenment um, and it has established rules and conventions about research and teaching and also qualifications. You know, you do an undergraduate degree uh, and a master's and a PhD and so on. Um, but in thinking about the history of Australia, um, there have there there have been there have been so many histories that have been produced about Australia that have come from outside the discipline. And so I was interested in um, what counts as history at a point in time. And the reason why I say this is because I didn't necessarily want to write this story as a conventional chronological narrative. And that's partly because the answer to the question, what is history, changes with every generation. So, for example, today we have no problems with including oral history in historical method and approach but 50 years ago or 100 years ago that was quite different so even the very boundaries the very terrain of the history discipline has changed at at different points in time and so I use the term history makers because I wanted to see that those boundaries are movable and that somebody who we would define as a historian or we would define as capital H history now might not have been at a point in time and conversely things that we would have perhaps described as um you know, exhibit A of, of, of world-class history in the 1890s seems perhaps more problematic today. Um, and that decision, those decisions change and those values have changed over time. So I thought I wanted to use the term history makers because um, 
just to broaden out, to push against some of those definitions of, of what the discipline is and is not. And related to that uh, actually is, so there's this question that you raised in chapter zero actually, which is who is a historian when we're studying the question of Australian history. So uh, let me turn the question on to you now actually. Uh, who were your historians uh, and how do you encounter them as well as, you know, wh- why do you choose them? Uh, the historians in this book? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, that's a nice question. I partly, I came to this book um, not not with a clear sense in my mind of how it would be written. I knew I wanted to write a history of Australian history, but I didn't know how it would look. And I also didn't even know where it would start. Like for, for, for a book about Australian history, where does, the, where does history start? And, who, and the question of where does the idea of a historian start? Does it start with um, colonisation? Because, you know, strictly speaking, colonists brought the history discipline with them. But, of course, history has been made in Australia for thousands of years and to exclude Indigenous forms of history making uh, and Indigenous historians from this book would be, um, you know, compounding um, a sort of silencing of Indigenous perspectives in Australian history. So I was... um, The the historians I chose, I wanted to reflect the discipline um, so a lot of them are, you know, classically trained um, academic historians who've written very well-known books about the past. Um, but I also wanted to, again, in that sense of like pushing, you know, that thing, that the sense of describing what's the territory of history, what's the what are the borders of history. I wanted to choose historians who, you know, what happens when we include a poet as a historian or a novelist as a historian or in one case in a chapter on convicts, what happens when we choose a convict um folk song folk, uh, as, a, as, a sort, as a text of history and, and the author as a historian because, of course, convicts didn't write history books and maybe this was their only way of, you know, marking out their own times and their own histories. So the whole book, I suppose, is a conversation about, you know, who is a historian and what is history and it doesn't really come up with hard and fast rules. So if you're looking for something definitive, I don't think this is the sort of book for you. But if you're looking for those conversations and that movement and that sort of pushing up against borders, but also, you know, stepping back and seeing um, seeing who gets to speak and who is perhaps been excluded from major national discussions about the past, then that's what I was trying to get at. And I think we most definitely really got that diversity. And I'm going to talk about, I want to ask you about that in just a second. But before that, I just wanted to ask, you know, in the process of researching this book and looking at the different sources, uh, were there any sources that actually surprised you or made you think, hmm, I need to reconsider, you know, maybe my definition of history? Yeah, definitely. Um, the first one actually happens in, in the first chapter and um, and even in the second chapter. And they are... Um, uh, indigenous forms of history making, and I'll give an example. Um, the 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 manuscript with the title "Manuscript One" in the National Library of Australia is James Cook's Endeavour Journals. So James Cook was an English um, naval officer and explorer who um, discovered, in inverted commas, Australia for um, for the British Empire in 1770 and he famously planted his flag in the northern tip of Australia and declared the sort of eastern portion of the continent for Britain. Um, 
and a lot of those early uh, colonial moments of contact, oh, so I should say European, not just colonial, moments of contact are written down by Europeans coming from the Netherlands, um, from England, from Britain and so on. And we know, we can see their voices because they've been written down and we get a very strong sense of this moment of discovery, in inverted commas, seeing the continent for the first time, seeing its inhabitants, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for the first time, seeing its landscape and, and animals uh, and environment for the first time. But there are, of course, uh, very powerful Aboriginal um, texts, if you like, of that moment of contact. And even around Sydney, where I live, there are two really interesting ones that are still visible. One of them is a rock engraving of a colonial woman in a in a in sort of a colonial dress, um, and another one is um, a painting in a cave in Western Sydney of um, some escaped bulls that escaped in the in the seventeen eighties. Uh, late 1780s, um, from the early colony and and disappeared, according to the colonists. And so when I was visiting these sites, um, I was very struck by the question of, you know, they're difficult historical sources and texts to wrestle with because there's no author, there's no date, um, they're not what we would necessarily call um, archives that we're familiar with. And yet, they give us a glimpse into what it was, what these moments of contact were like from the other side of that sort of dividing line, if you like, of cultural contact in Australia and colonisation. And they pressed upon me because, you know, they're challenging sources to deal with and texts to use. But the cost of not using them, I thought, was much more significant for the discipline than the challenges of, of absorbing them. And for, that was the, one of the first sort of times as I was kind of contemplating this book where I sort of thought, actually, Australian history is much, much bigger than the discipline of history. And in fact, the discipline of history has been um, policing who is and isn't a historian and what is and isn't history for a long time. Meanwhile, these very important histories have been made perhaps outside the discipline and yet they have so much to contribute to our understanding of the nation's past. Thank, thank you very much for that. So um, there's a lot of discussion here about sources and that's actually one of the things I found quite novel about the text, which is the organising principle. Uh, the text itself is structured along 16 chapters and each chapter begins with a primary text. And that's not always like, you know, as you mentioned, it's not really a archival material sometimes. Sometimes there's no date. Sometimes we don't know who created it. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak behind the inspiration behind this principle and uh, how do you come to select these texts? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the inspiration behind this principle was um, actually it, it, it happened totally by chance. I was wondering how to write this book and, as I said, one of the first questions that I was struggling with when I started the, started the project was where do you start? How do you start a book about Australian history? Where does it start? And um, because I couldn't work out a good starting place, um, because, for example, um, Aboriginal forms of history-making is only a relatively recent addition into the discipline itself. It felt like a very difficult place. It was really hard for me to come up with a, with a starting point. So I thought actually one way of thinking about the starting point isn't the point itself, it's the idea of beginnings. Um, and I thought, well, I could write a chapter one that's a history of all the chapter ones in Australian history and call it chapter one 
Um, and so I started, that was a way that I could kind of break up that what I thought was kind of um, potentially limiting the, the sort of project. And so once I had this idea that Chapter 1 would be a history of Chapter 1s and you could call it Chapter 1 or beginnings as it turned out to be, um, then I had my text because the first kind of text um, that I use and is this history of New Holland, which is the um, early name for the continent of Australia by Great Britain. Um, and that enabled me to kind of... Um, play around with this idea of beginnings and once I had that as my start I kind of had a uh, like a conceit for the whole structure of the book and I could choose different sources and texts for each chapter and sometimes that was actually hard because there were there were themes that I really wanted to deal with but it took me a while to find the right text if you know what I mean um, and that took over time that took a little bit of wrestling some were very obvious but some some were quite um, some were quite tricky and I think like, I mean, I, I genuinely think that you did select the right text at the end because I think the text that you selected really, I think, do help to push the argument that you're making. So uh, on that vein, I think maybe we'd like to now chat a little bit about the broad argument that you're making. Uh, there is 16 chapters in a book and uh, we will not be able to uh, go through everything in a way that does the really excellent writing justice. So perhaps you could talk a little bit uh, about the broad argument that you're making. Um one part of the argument that you make actually is an observation about the relationship between nation building and history making in Australia. And this, I think, begins in Chapter 4, where you begin with uh, Alexander and George Sutherland's The History of Australia. Uh, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit more about the Sutherlands and their history making, as well as the context in which they wrote The History of Australia. Yeah, thank you. And I'd be interested to know, actually, in a Singaporean context, whether there's any overlap here, because I think um, in Australia, what is interesting about Australian history is the discipline as it professionalises in the late 19th century as universities are established, you know, that university have been established in, in, in Europe and elsewhere for hundreds of years, but in Australia, they begin to be established in the second half of the 19th century. At the same time that um, the history discipline is forming around sort of certain rules and ideas are about truth and sources and archives are being created and museums are being created again in Australia at the same time. Um, as this sort of foundational nationalism is emerging in Australia, you know, 100 years after colonisation in 1788, um, by, this, by the late 19th century, there's, there are questions about, well, what is this place going to be? Will it become you know, an Australia, what is it going to, what's going to happen? Uh, and so the, as the education system uh, was developing around this time, there's a sense that it needed to teach history to young Australians um, on the verge of nationhood, really, because nationhood is granted in 1901. So I chose this text because it's one of the first history textbooks. It is really the first history textbook in Australia that's about Australian history, and it's by two people, two brothers from Victoria who are writing in Australia. And it presents a very interesting idea about what Australia is. And the thing I found most fascinating about histories written at this time is that they are, you know, very much ensconced in the sort of um, historical standards of, of objectivity and, and primary source material um, and research. Um, but at the same time, um, they are at, they, they're looking at Australia as a kind of into the future, as if, if, as if history's yet to happen in Australia. Um, there's some sort of foundational discussion about, um, you know, 
progress, national co- colonization and, and nation building as progress. And then almost as if the sort of the last page is blank saying, you know, what's going to happen next? And so I, I found this moment of um, disciplinary um, establishment and nation national establishment to be happening at the same time, that had really interesting effects on the history discipline. I, I would say actually that it was actually reading this chapter that actually kind of inspired a significant change in my master's dissertation. So uh, we could talk about that perhaps a little bit later, but uh, I, I do want to kind of talk come back to this idea about uh, you know the idea of the textbook because one of the things you mentioned in the text is this idea of textual communities and the extent to which they form around these texts. So I was wondering if we could perhaps expand on this more in the Australian context. So was there a textual community formed around the history of Australia and what did that community look like? Yeah, that's a lovely question. And that, that I think that idea comes from my background in history education. Um, so I've previously been studied mostly um, the ways history is taught in schools in Australia uh, and debates, I suppose, over syllabus development and textbook, you know, textbooks um, around internationally. And um, I found it, I sort of find it interesting that in particular generations, they coalesce around certain um, textbooks and syllabuses and governments um, take, as, as the nation changes and as governments change, one of the first things they do is rewrite textbooks or rewrite history syllabuses. And so I was interested in whether we could use this, what, what's quite a modern idea around um, sort of textbooks and textual communities to go back to Benedict Anderson's very um, influential term of um, imagined communities around the nation. And I was interested in whether a history text like a a big selling textbook, and this is in a population of less than 4 million people, this textbook by Alexander and George Sutherland sold over 100,000 copies, which is extraordinary given that education had only, compulsory education was only a couple of years old when they first wrote their textbook. Um, I was interested in in this idea of of the imagined community of Australian nationalism or Australian nationhood, I suppose, um, being given um, agency, if you like, and through these education, through this education system and through these textbooks. So whole cohorts of students would have been reading these textbooks and and developing an understanding of Australia. Meanwhile, Australia is kind of emerging into an idea at the same time. So I was sort of interested in what extent narratives of nationhood actually created the Australian nation itself. And that, again, going back to that earlier question of yours, how the, what, what are the intersections between the history discipline and um, national formation. And I'm going to pick up right from there, actually, because earlier we talked a little bit about this idea of uh, history as a discipline that uh, engages in some degrees of policing or what is and isn't history. Um, and I believe, you know, in the later chapter, you talk about this idea of history curating the past. So perhaps could you share with us a little bit about kind of what was the history that the Sutherlands uh, wrote? So what was excluded from it? And um, also, I guess, kind of why do you think those exclusions were made? Mm. Um, gosh, um, lots of lots of big questions here. Um, yeah, I, I, I was as I was reading these, um, reading a lot of texts. I was reading a lot of histories from the early nineteenth century of Australia and later nineteenth century of Australia. And then, of course, I've been trained in the late twentieth century and early twentieth 
21st century. So I'm comparing 19th century texts with my own training. And what really struck me was in the 19th century, this sense of sort of history's inevitability uh, and this sense of strong sense of progress that that came through. Um, And I think that's partly because of its relationship to nation building and that Australia is, you know, is is a source of should be a source of a national pride and therefore its own histories should lend themselves to that sort of national formation. And so there's a very interesting, I think, evolution in changing understandings about what are the role, what is the role and purpose of history. If you compare the role and purpose of history from the 1870s or 1880s to 2020, it's very different, I think. Um, and so looking back, that I was interested if the role and purpose of history in the late 19th century is to advance a, na- a national sort of sentiment and advance a kind of a, a national literacy, if you like, then aspects of the past that don't do that are excluded. So in this case, um, you know, Indigenous perspectives are excluded from the national story because they don't they aren't seen to advance the national narrative. And if anything, they really trouble it because they show it wasn't a story of progress for everybody, that a lot of Indigenous people in Australia um, were murdered um, or and died from violence um, and from disease uh, and had been have been excluded from the, the sort of de- supposed democratic progress of the nation. But these questions of... of of curation change over time so that, um, you know, as certain things are excluded in one generation, they might come in in another. Uh, And I was interested in what shape um, the discipline took over these many generations. And, and, And I guess that comes back to my idea of a map with different borders, you know, um, what's in and what's out of the discipline changes over time. Uh, And this, sort of grand process of curation also helps to explain why people disagree about the past because some people um, are upset that certain perspectives are excluded or others are included at any one point in time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I think this question of exclusion is discussed in Chapter 9, Silence. Uh, and, you know, one of the things you noted was that uh, W.E.H. Stenner's uh, second lecture in the Boyer series titled After the Dreaming was uh, one of the kind of like big shifts uh, in the uh, understanding of what Australian history was. Uh, can you share with us a little bit more about why you chose this text as a starting point for that chapter and a little bit about uh, who Stanner was for our listeners who may not be aware of uh, or very well aware of, of Australian history? Thank you. Yeah, I, I was prompted to write this chapter because I was, um, there was an uh, an exhibition on, I think, in the National museum in Britain and was then replicated in Australia, which was what are the 100 most important objects um, in Australia, most significant objects in Australia. And I was speaking with somebody from the museum and I thought we were having this conversation about whether you could have um, a box of nothing in it, 
as one of the objects for all the stuff that's been excluded. You know, that again, that act of curation is, is sort of made very obvious. Because I think the flip side of national memory is national forgetting and silencing. Uh, and Australia has a pretty big history of silencing. Um, as, you know, I just alluded to before, um, Indigenous perspectives have really been excluded from the um, broader mainstream official national narrative of Australia for until the late 20th century, really, in terms of it, their presence in school syllabuses and textbooks, for example. Um, and so when I was thinking, I, I, so I always wanted to have the equivalent of that box of emptiness in my book, that despite all of this history making, what, what isn't in that end product is also really important in the act, in the study of curation, historical curation. So I always wanted to have uh, a chapter on silence and um, WH Stanner's 1968 Boyer Lectures, which is a very sort of public um, important um, lecture that's broadcast on the national radio station, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, he, he was a famous anthropologist and he gave this lecture called... Um, Called after lecture series called after the dreaming, and in it one of his um, one of the terms that he referred to is the Great Australian Silence. That was the title of one of the lectures in the in the series. And so th there's a there's been a real sense that that lecture was a turning point in Australian historical memory, and that he really gave um, he he articulated. A, a sort of a growing feeling in Australia that Australian history hadn't been telling the whole story, not the Australian history discipline anyway. Other people had been telling it and there had been unofficial narratives and there'd been sort of creative interpretations and readings of um, Indigenous experience. Uh, and, of course, there have been counter-narratives and, and counter-archives sort of maintained by um, Indigenous people in Australia. But the actual you know, official national narrative, if you like, had excluded, largely excluded Indigenous experiences. And he wondered why, uh, Stana, in his lecture, he said, you know, why is it that historians have not been engaging with this? And he said that it was almost as if, you know, a whole, a, a kind of a lens had been put down over our eyes to sort of obscure a whole quadrant um, of the national imagination. And so I felt like he was... Um, really being able to give words to that idea that I that I had been sort of playing with around around curation, which is, you know, what we remember and what we forget. And so I thought his lecture was a perfect text to use in that in that instant. And as it turned out, it has often been referred to as a turning point when Australian historians um, and the broader public sort of um, shifted in terms of, of their understanding and wanting to know more about Australia's Australian history. I actually think it's quite significant, actually, that uh, Stanner is an anthropologist, and yeah. I think you Not know an that's yeah. I think that's something that you actually discussed a little bit in chapter thirteen on imagination. So I was wondering, how do you envision the relationship between history and other disciplines? Because I mean, Stanner did note that the history discipline needed to engage in some kinds of structural changes in order to be able to better uh, capture these stories that were forgotten about. So yeah, what do you think about that relationship? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And I, I, I think that it goes back to that 19th century phenomenon that you picked up on earlier, which is that sort of close um, codependence, if you like, between the history discipline and the nation. The nation needed the history discipline to give it a narrative and the history discipline needed sort of na the nation, the, the structural nation, if you like, to give historians 
authority and credibility. Uh, and it became such that um, histories that disrupted the nation weren't necessarily included um, in in national histories, but also it, because history had the history discipline in the late nineteenth century had been formed around this notion of sort of scientific objectivity. Anything that troubled that or that didn't sit in that kind of remit of scientific objectivity was considered to be not historical, not rigorous enough. And, of course, that excluded a lot of Australian history. If you think of the convicts didn't write stuff down, um, Indigenous culture is an oral culture, uh, and archives that are in the landscape aren't sort of written down and in paper and sort of deposited in the National Library and so on. And so it developed, it led to a very skewed understanding of what Australian history was. Um, But meanwhile, that didn't mean that those perspectives or those stories disappeared altogether. They were simply edited out of the main kind of disciplinary explorations of Australia's past. But they were kept alive. They were kept alive in the Aboriginal communities they were kept alive in landscape through those archives that I alluded to earlier, the you know rock engravings and art and so on, um, in archaeological um, practices, um, and also in um, creative expressions of Australian history through art and poetry and literature and so on. And I thought it was really important to engage or look at that relationship between the kind of official and the non-official or the the sort of sanctioned and the counter-narratives of Australia because like that sort of um, flip side between uh, memory and forgetting, I think um, official and counter, I don't think you can have an official history without something else rubbing up against it and I don't think you definitely don't get a counter-narrative without a narrative. And, I mean, one of the things that I actually really appreciated is, you know, the importance of historical imagination. Uh, it is something that my own supervisor talks to me about when we're talking about our dissertation, my, my, my dissertation. So I was wondering, how do you think historians can build up their capacity for historical imagination in a way that doesn't, you know, result in us making things up, which, as you note, is quite problematic and shouldn't <laughs> be done. Yeah. It certainly is quite problematic, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think there's a there's a kind of, there's a tension here because, of course, um, this isn't a matter of sort of letting saying everything goes and that, you know, Holocaust denial, you know, can can exist alongside a sort of rigorous, um, rigorous research. But I, I'm not making that claim. What I'm suggesting is that um, given that the history discipline excluded so many perspectives and so many forms of history making, it's up to the history discipline to sort of make some of those edges a little blurrier and make that sort of disciplinary policing a little more porous because if that doesn't happen then those perspectives are always going to be excluded alongside that movement or you know acceptance and perhaps disciplinary capaciousness I think what's also required is um, uh, a a capacity to evaluate different perspectives so of course a historical novel is not the same as a researched monograph. Of course they're different, but that doesn't mean that the historical novel doesn't have anything to offer historians. That's what I'm trying to get at with this chapter. Um, And given the sort of popularity of popular forms of history through, um, you know, heritage, historical film, narrative, nonfiction, historical fiction, and so on, I think there are things that, that 
that disciplinary historians can learn actually from some of those popular forms of history making in terms of storytelling, um, accessibility, uh, language, and and maybe even that sort of imagination, um, you know, that leap of imagination that that you allude to there. Because of course, all works of history require a leap of imagination in order to step into another time. Um, and conveying that to our readers or, you know, or, um, or watchers or listeners is, is key. Otherwise, that sort of active communication is lost. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I am mindful that we are taking up quite a lot of the time. So uh, I only have two questions left. And the next one is really more of an uh, invitation for you to kind of reflect because you concluded your book with some really insightful reflections on the historian's craft. So I was wondering if you could share with us, you know, how do you understand the role of a historian now and whether this process of researching and writing the book has changed perhaps your understanding as well as your practice of the historian's mm-hmm. craft? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um yeah, I feel like I have my understanding of, of what it means to be a historian now is quite different from some of those earlier historians that I studied, uh, which isn't to diminish the, the sort of contribution that they made to our understanding of the past. But I feel like my role isn't to bolster a national narrative. I, I think it's to make the world a better place. Uh, I think there's an ethical and there's a democratising sort of um, you know, role there for history. Uh, But I feel like instead of making prouder citizens, I might be making more educated citizens and more critically engaged citizens. That's how I see my role um, as history. And in researching this book, I definitely have, um, you know, been forced to think about my own historical practice, um, particularly in a settler colonial society like Australia. It's very clear that, you know, I am non-Indigenous and I have and I'm writing a book about Australian history. Um, and so there have been some, you know, there's some reckoning still to do with with my role uh, and the discipline's role in the sort of historying of Australia, if you like. Uh, and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon and it shouldn't go away anytime soon. And, in fact, I think the history discipline becomes better when it's engaging directly with those questions. And writing this book certainly prompted that uh, discussion and, and kind of internal debate in my own mind. Thank you. That was very inspiring. Um, so my last question really is, you know, this was a very immense project. What's next for you? <laughs> well, um, I'm actually taking long service leave next year. That's my first step. Um, but in that long service leave, I'm not sort of um, throwing off my history boots altogether. I'm actually enrolling in an archaeology degree. Um, and it's partly in response to this book because it made me realise how much more expansive the archives are in a place like Australia uh, than in the sort of, um, you know, paper archive um, in, the, in the libraries and, and, and national records and so on. And so I wanted, I've been prompted by my own research to become more sort of literate in some of those other archives of landscape and cultural heritage and so on. Thanks, thanks, Greena, and I wish you all the best for that degree. Yep, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Anna, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. This has been a really great chat and I've learned a lot from you uh, over the last couple of like minutes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Benjamin, um, for your really informed and thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it.